Uh, if you have your Bibles, would you open them to Philippians chapter 1? Uh, I hope you enjoyed the Sermon on the Mount as much as I did. Uh, but now I'm starting a new series uh, working through the book of Philippians for however, Lord, for however long the Lord gives us to take through it. I don't know. We will see. Um, but today we come to Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And before we read God's word, let us offer up prayer to him for his help. Uh, Father, we do thank you that we get to gather morning and evening, day and night, to hear from your word, to rest not just from our labors, but to rest in you. For that is where true rest is found. And so, Lord, we pray you'd help us this evening to take your yoke upon us once again. For we know your yoke is easy and your burden is light. May you teach us and instruct us. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, reading through verse 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you, what are the times of your life or the people you've been around where you have experienced the closest friendships that you have? Who are the people that when you think of them, you have an immediate thankfulness and affection for? Maybe it's your spouse. I hope it's your spouse. Maybe it's a team that you were a part of, a, gr a group of friends from college that you spent many long hours uh, just doing life together with. Maybe it was fellow service members that you served in the military with, people that you've gone through various trials and victories, 
asking, who are the people in your life that you would give anything? You, you'd give your whole self for, no matter the circumstance. In this letter to the Philippians, we get a glimpse of this type of relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi. If you're unfamiliar, we're going to do a little bit of background on this church since we're just starting letter, but Philippi was a city in Macedonia, which is basically modern-day Greece. So you think of the, the Mediterranean, you kind of have Greece and Italy, um, the northwest, and uh, sort of Jerusalem and Judah down in the southeast. So, so Philippi is in Greece in northwest Mediterranean. It was a very important Roman city, had a, a main highway, one of the main Roman highways that connected Greece to the rest of Turkey, runs through Philippi. So it was fairly prominent city, very uh, heavily occupied by Roman citizens and officials. Paul arrives in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 on his first missionary journey, and, and there he preaches the gospel. And we see uh, in Acts 16, the conversion of Lydia. There's a conversion of a slave girl who has this spirit of divination. And when she converts to Christianity, her masters are mad at Paul because now they've lost their means of profit. We also see the conversion of the aptly named Philippian jailer as Paul is there in prison. So, so Paul's there, he's preached the gospel, and at some point, we don't know when, his stay there, at least in that journey, wasn't terribly long. Uh, at some point, the church is established, and that church, as it, it grows, and they remember the work that Paul did among them, they become a church that is very eager to support Paul in his missionary work. And there really were the only church in Macedonia at the time that were supporting his work initially. We see this in chapter 4, so we're going to handle it much later. But, but think about Paul's circumstance. He's in prison. He's telling them that he's learned the secret of facing contentment when he's hungry and when he's in need. And here is this church that is just so eager and committed to his ministry that they just, they keep sending supplies. They keep sending help to him time and time again. Like even the most spiritual person who is trying to trust Jesus, even when they're starving, they are going to be overjoyed by this show of love and support. That was the relationship that the Philippians had with Paul. Sort of a missionary and supporting church relationship. And yes, that there is the sort of transactional relationship there. A, a supporting church has to send their missionary finances and, and funds so that their ministry can be carried out. But the relationship between Paul and the Philippians is much more than simply a financial transaction. We see that their affection and warmth far eclipse the business 
of funds and donations. There is a true love and bond between this church and their missionary pastor that they have sent out. And so it appears in the midst of this relationship that Paul is writing this particular letter that he he has been jailed once again. And, And we don't know which imprisonment this is. There's a whole long debate. I'm not going to get into it now, but we know that Paul has been jailed. And one of the few details that he offers us is that he hopes that he will be delivered and can come back to the Philippians once again. But we we don't know uh, which imprisonment this is, but we do know that Paul is in prison and that one of the ways that your needs were met while you were in a Roman prison is that you would have outsiders send you supplies, send you money, clothing for food, for shelter. And so the Philippians are evidently very distressed once again as they're sending him this means of provision. that They're still worried about his future Outcome, And so Paul is writing to encourage them that even in the midst of this suffering, he wants to deepen their fellowship with him and increase their joy in the Lord. That, that really is Paul's purpose as he writes this letter to the Philippians, to help provide a perspective on his suffering and how he's thinking about what the Lord is doing through him so they can have more joy in the Lord. That that theme of joy is going to come up over and over and over again throughout this letter. Much like a symphony. Many of you, if you study classical music, uh, I just started this year. I was forced upon me. But if you know anything about symphonies, the the main theme or, or the melody of a symphony is played at the beginning. And throughout the symphony, that melody, that theme is repeated over and over again with little tweaks, little embellishments. And Paul's letters act in much the same way. He he introduces a main theme at the beginning of his letter that is going to be sort of a melodic line that is repeated throughout the rest of the letter. And here, the theme of joy, of love, and knowledge is the melodic line that is repeated throughout Philippians. And in fact, it was that joy and love and knowledge Paul displays in some of the most difficult circumstances throughout this letter. As, as I read it as an early believer, that, that love and joy and knowledge was some of the things that most shaped and transformed me in my early walk with the Lord. See, as as a young believer, I had this idea that, you know, Christianity was just kind of this religion. It's this sort of light, happy state of mind where God solves all your problem and you just live out your days singing like early 90s contemporary Christian music. But Paul is potentially days away from an executioner's sword Bring, being brought down upon his head, and he can still say to the Philippians, that happens, die, that's game. That, that if I'm put to death, that's actually a good thing. And I remember reading that as a young Christian thinking, who talks like that? What is Paul thinking? That, that's a very different way of 
perceiving the Christian life than I had initially thought about. But it's only with the right knowledge of God, the right knowledge of the gospel, the right knowledge of all that Christ has done for us, that we can have joy in that kind of circumstance. So the Christian life isn't one of ease and you kind of float through the rest of your life where, where nothing bad ever happens to you again. We know the, the curse of life, the, the, the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon the earth is still very much active, even for the Christian. But as the Christian who has the knowledge of God, the knowledge of what he is doing and what he has done through Christ that can face the toughest of life's circumstances. And so that's the theme of Paul's letter. He, he wants the Philippians to have the love and joy and knowledge of Christ that they can endure the same circumstances that he's enduring and have the same hope that he does. So that's the theme of Philippians. But this evening, I want to spend the rest of our time considering the content of the opening 11 verses of this letter. And I want to do so really under two main headings. First is thanksgiving, and the second is prayer. So thanksgiving. Paul makes it abundantly clear that his joy and his thankfulness for the Philippians should never again be in question. Th think of all that he says in the opening verses. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. And later in verse eight, he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You get the point Paul's trying to make to the Philippians. You, you give me so much reason to praise the Lord. So much reason for thanksgiving and joy. And don't you just love the people in your life that whenever you're reminded of them, you just, you hear their name or they come to mind and your first response is just, oh, Lord, thank you for them. They're, they're just, they're so humble. They're, they're so caring. They're so grace-filled that, that even thinking about them just brings joy and relief to you. Love those people. There are dozens of them, many in this church even. And we think, we love that we have those type of people in our lives. This should be a challenge to us that all of us ought to strive to be those types of people that others would say that about us, that when people hear your name in a conversation, that their heart is warmed just as Paul's is. And again, this isn't called, you have to be perfect, right? Even you look at Philippians when he says that I'm thankful for all of you. Well, you go to chapter four, and one of the things he's doing there is he is entreating Iodia and Syntyche to, to agree in the Lord. So there's evidently some sort of conflict happening in the church in Philippi that Paul has to address. But even in the midst of that conflict, he can say, I am thankful for 
all of you. So this isn't a call to be perfect, but it is a call to be filled with grace, to humble ourselves and think of others more highly than ourselves, to to love each other well. And love and grace can cover a multitude of sins and lead to remarkable forgiveness within the church. And that is true. But we also see in the Philippian church that there is a particular measure of grace that characterizes the lives of these believers that leads Paul to to express a constant thanksgiving for them. And it is a grace that is instructive for us as a church to model ourselves after. So so we're going to study that more in chapter 2. But but here again, we see the first notes of that love and and humility being played in the letter. Paul's going to set this up so that he can fully expound on how we're to be people of grace and how we're to be people of humility later on. But we see that there is a call for the church to function in this way. We're also instructed by Paul's response itself when he remembers his friends. Think, it would be a very one-sided friendship if yeah, you, you have those people and you call them to mind, you say, oh, Lord, thank you for them. But what does Paul do? He, he's thankful for them, but then every time he remembers them, he is moved to pray for them. He, he isn't content with just being thankful. Oh, I'm glad the Philippian church exists. He, he's thankful that they've served his needs, that they've met his needs time and time again. But in light of his expression of thankfulness, in light of that emotion, he responds as often as he thinks of them by serving them before the throne of the Father. That, that is Paul's ministry to the Philippians, that they minister to his needs and he offers up prayers to the Father on their behalf. And he's writing this letter to instruct them, to encourage them. And so these relationships are not meant to be one-sided. There is a, a mutual love and caring for one another. And it is this type of mutual love and affection and service that makes the Christian community so contagious. That there's a group of people that aren't just using each other for their own gain. That they're following the example of Christ and laying down their lives for one another in service. Again, we see specifically in verse 5 that Paul's affection is stirred because of, of that very type of partnership in the gospel. And again, when when he talks about this this partnership, it certainly means at least that they have a shared fellowship, a shared belief in the gospel, that 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 is taking place. He's thankful for that, but he's also thankful, I think, beyond that for their partnership in his gospel ministry. It's not just that they have a common belief, but they have a common aim as well and a common participation in bringing the gospel to the rest of the world. 
He, he uses the same language of partnership in chapter 4, verse 15, where he says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So, so it's clear that he isn't just thankful that they are united in Christ and all of the realities of the gospel and how it brings people together, that that reality does exist. But there is also an active participation in that gospel reality that produces the fruit of fellowship and thanksgiving for one another. They're united in a common purpose and working together to bring the gospel to the lost. That is the gospel partnership that he's expressing thankfulness for most specifically. So union with Christ is necessary for this type of fellowship. But if we neglect one another and we don't exercise the, the muscles of love and hospitality towards one another, then our spiritual union will only exist spiritually and will not be evident physically. You get the, the point there. We, we can have a spiritual union, but we, we have to exercise that union so that it displays fruit outwardly. And Paul says of the Philippians that they believed the same gospel he believed. And then they put it into practice by partnering with him in his ministry, by joining with him in love and spirit, so that he would then be free to go and tell more people about the gospel, that those people could then believe and join in their fellowship as well. And Paul knows, as he reflects on that gospel partnership, that participation, he knows that they are going to continue in that participation. So there's a debate in verse 6 about what the good work that God began is referring to. But it seems most likely, again, that Paul is referring to more than just God's preserving work in their salvation. It's not less than that. We know that God is the one who regenerates hearts, who justifies the believer, who sanctifies, who, who preserves the faith of believers. And that truth is assumed, it is present here in this verse. But simply speaking of that preserving work would be out of place in this paragraph on the Philippians gospel partnership. And then he goes on to talk about their enduring confirmation and defense of the gospel in the verses following. So, so to have a statement dealing with the bare mechanism of preservation of their faith seems to be a little bit out of place. It seems more that Paul is saying, I know that you're going to continue in your partnership with me in the gospel as well. Though that means they must continue in their faith if they're going to continue in that partnership. And Paul's confident that they're going to continue in this, not just because they have been partners in the gospel up to now, but Paul knows 
But God is the one who is still at work in them. God works salvation in them to begin with, and he will continue to work salvation in them. And he also gave them a spirit of partnership that he will continue to work in them as well. But Paul's confidence for the Philippians and our confidence, hope we have for Good Shepherd, isn't in and of themselves. It is in the continuing and sustaining grace of God. Think, if God does not build the house, the laborers who build it labor in vain. Right? If he does not give us a heart for gospel proclamation, then this church will die. And the same with the Philippians in Paul's ministry. If, if God isn't the one doing the work in them, it will end. That is Paul's confidence. It's not in the Philippians themselves. It is in what God is doing. And our confidence should not be in us. It should be in what God is doing. So yes, we respond to this grace. We, we exercise it in the power of the Holy Spirit. But this work begins and ends with God who gives the grace. So then, we ought not neglect what God has worked in us and what he has called us to. If we neglect it, then maybe it's 10 years, 25 years, maybe it's 50 years. If we neglect God's grace, good shepherd will be no more. So then let us make gospel proclamation primary. In this pulpit, around our dinner tables, in our backyards, at our workplaces, through campus outreach at Western Michigan, through our missionary partners around the world, we ought to make gospel proclamation primary, knowing that it is God who worked in us to begin with. It is God's gospel going forth, and it is God who is going to bring the fruit of that work. And again, as we see the connection between the Philippians and Paul, it wasn't just a financial transaction that connected them. And so as I've been wrestling with these verses, even in the life of our own church, we think about the ministries that we support. We don't want to just be financially committed to those ministries. We want to be financially committed. At least do that. That is good and necessary. But we also are called as a church to be emotionally, relationally, prayerfully connected as well. If we're going to use Paul and the Philippians as our model, pray we're not just a church sending money to the far corners of the world and across the street to the campus, but that we are a church who is getting behind the ministries we are supporting in prayer and excitement, giving them our emotional energy, our, our relational energy as well. And so I've already begun talking with the missions committee more on that. Nothing practical yet, other than we ought to be people who are cultivating a heart for that connection to our ministries. Because Paul and the Philippians are setting that example of love and affection for one another for us. Second heading for this introduction. Be shorter for you. And that is that of prayer. We see Paul's prayer for the Philippians in this opening greeting. 
And just as he has expressed thanksgiving for their partnership that was expressed in their love for him, Paul now prays that that love they have for him would continue to grow more and more. And now we need to be careful here, though, as we think about just this growing love. That's good command. I want your love to grow. So you abound more and more in love. We, as God's people, need to abound more and more in love. But we need to be careful that love is not just simply this sentimental feeling that we muster up indiscriminately allowing any and all things. Right? That, that's the world's conception of love. And if you love me, you're going to let me be me. You're going to let me do what I want. And, and if God loves me, then he's going to let me do what I want. I mean, how, how often do we hear it said, okay, God is love. And using that as a justification to do whatever somebody wants to do. But, but let's just, we'll set aside how wrong that, God is love, hermeneutic is. Another, do that another day. But we see plainly, even in this text, that love for someone is not an indiscriminate approval of anything that they want. Love is not blind affection, right? Paul says that the best way for love to be expressed is with knowledge and discernment. You know, an example. Uh, I think it's safe to say nobody loves my kids more than Sarah and I, right? But if my kids need heart surgery, I'm not going to be the best person to open them up and perform the operation. Why? Because even though I love them, I don't have the requisite knowledge to safely bring them through a procedure that is going to open up their chest and cut into their heart and sew them back together, right? All of the love in the world is not going to bring them safely through that. You need knowledge directed towards them in order for them to be safe. So I'm not going to perform the surgery. I'm going to let a skilled surgeon do that. And so love for one another without a knowledge of God's will and character is also going to lead to all sorts uh, sorts of spiritual neglect and harm, right? Just loving people indiscriminately without understanding who God is and what God has called us to do is actually going to hurt people. So... We want to see, then, how this relationship between love and knowledge works. And just as much harm as knowledge without love is love without knowledge. So what do I mean by that? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, is what Paul says about love and knowledge. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing, right? So love and knowledge go together. Knowledge must be pursued with love as its object, right? If you just have knowledge, no love, you're worthless. So knowledge must be pursued with love as its object. 
but love must be exercised with knowledge as its guide. One without the other is going to miss the mark of the Christian life. And so then, as the Philippians grow in this loving knowledge, they will then grow in their sanctification. So the gospel will be at work in them. As they learn to love the Lord and learn to love what he loves, they're going to look more like him, and the gospel is going to be put on display. They're going to be doing all of this, Paul says, to the glory and praise of God for the day of Christ. That's what's, that, that is what Paul is praying for, for their sanctification to glorify God, aiming at the day of Christ. And that day of Christ is the end goal of the church. Now again, I think I've said this before, but we need to have a theology of Jesus' coming that doesn't just make us monks that want to sit in a monastery and just contemplate Jesus' coming and, and prepare for his return. We're not living in a convent just waiting until Jesus comes back. So, so yes, we are to be in the world, to be salt and light, living peaceably with all, working to provide for our families, providing an inheritance for the next generation. All of that is biblical language, right? That's not canceled because we're looking ahead to Christ. But all of those things that I mentioned are to be done within the context that Jesus could return at any moment and come and finally consummate his kingdom. And that coming is the event. It is the day that we are looking forward to the most and the day that we are conducting all the rest of our business around. The day that we're centering our lives upon. That's what it means to be doing all of this for the coming day of the Lord. So what that means then is that my heart, my, my passion, my, my desire is that I want to give myself to God's kingdom more than I want to give myself to my kingdom. I want my own personal holiness and the holiness of God's people more than I want a life of comfort and ease and pleasure. I want to add to the number who are worshiping in heaven more than I want to add to the number of people who think I'm just respectable and a stand-up guy. That is our ultimate aim as Christians. And that is Paul's aim in this prayer for the Philippian church would be growing in love, accompanied with knowledge and discernment that their lives would look more like Christ being prepared for the day of Christ. That's his prayer for them. And as we prepare for that day ourselves, living lives of faithfulness, participating in the gospel, just like the Philippians were, growing and continuing in love for one another, growing in love that is rooted in knowledge, growing in the fruit of righteousness, as, as that becomes what marks us. And the good news is that God will be all the more glorified in us. 
And the praise of his name will increase over all the earth. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. Thank you first and foremost for your son. That he instructs us how we are to love one another. And as we grow in that love, as that love is informed by knowledge and discernment of your will, and as we love one another, that there would be many reasons and opportunities for thankfulness for those in this body towards one another. And that as the world sees our fellowship and our love and our joy and our humility and our service, so they would see those good works and turn and give glory to you. Oh, we pray that you would help us. Never let us neglect these things. All to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.